$155 million wonderland. As if by magic, 1,216 acres of wasteland have been transformed into the most stupendous exposition the world has ever known. Ladies and gentlemen, you are about to witness the most excitingly different new concept in the history of television. So you think so? All of you who are living in the year 2000 are fortunate. I think it was back in 1944, wasn't it? That's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. Dude, did you see the Suicide Squad trailer? Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I saw it. I was scrolling on the Instagram or whatever, and I, th- I was confronted with the image of them doing like the slow motion walk, and it's in the colorful backdrop. Yeah, and I, I thought it was an advertisement, honestly, because of the colors. It looked That's like what a trailer is. Yeah, well, <laughs> 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 yes, <laughs> okay, but I thought it, they were. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was some sort of sponsored ad for some like I don't know, like a fan film or something. And I'm seeing oh, okay. Michael Rooker walking and he's drinking a cola and I guess that's supposed to be transgressive or something. And yeah, I just I, they have some guys from the other movie in it, but some aren't. And there's no Will Smith, uh, but there's Harley Quinn and she's quirky as ever, man. Huh? Crazy broad she is. Don't say broad. Oh well, my god, you sound like you're from 1950s America. When you which say broad. is when these things were written. I'm 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 referring to her as the writers would have. Actually, I have to correct you there, sir. Oh god, as, as a nerd, Harley Quinn was a character originally designed for Batman the Animated Series on Fox in 1991. She was part of like one of the original characters on there. Also, fun oh. fact: Batman the Animated Series in its first couple seasons was nominated for an Academy Award or an Emmy for Best Animated Series, an episode for one with Dr. Freeze. Uh, I would actually highly recommend that you watch it. You'd be you'd be fascinated. Dr. Freeze. I will find it for you after the after this recording. Is it the governor voicing it? No. No. Uh, this you're going to actually like this. You're going to be like, "Wow, there's German expressionism in this cartoon for kids in the 90s." I would definitely check that out then. Yeah, I will show it. You'll be like, "Wow, this was for kids." But yeah, so Here's the thing also with that Suicide Squad trailer. This is James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. So this is his vision. And it's right there. It's like from the vision and mind of, of James Gunn. And then you've got now Justice League, the Snyder Cut, and Restore the Snyderverse is now trending, where you've got The Rock and AT&T going, look at these numbers. We need to do this. And The Rock wants to fight Henry Cavill's Superman, not the new Superman. And Warner Brothers is like, oh, no. We might have to actually do this. Does The Rock have that power? That's crazy. The The Rock has an immense amount of power in Hollywood at this point. And, yeah, yeah, I guess so. And you've got Matt Reeves' take on the Batman, which is very much like a Sherlock feel. Because this was going to be the the Ben Affleck detective Batman, right? He was going to do like yes, the but film now noir. They, they went back to like because it's a younger Batman. They went to like this is uh, technically year two. So he's only been doing it for. So he's still very much like an angry kid. Which okay. is why it's so like violent in the trailer. But it also feels very grounded, just like the Dark Knight did, but in a different way. It feels more Sherlock. It doesn't feel like it's a comment on like the war on terror. And then you've got Joker, which you've seen. Yes, yes. Now each one of these is extremely distinct from each other. And they don't actually like intersect all that much. But they, I mean they did recut Shazam at the end because they wanted to add in the black Superman suit from Snyder Cut. But what it feels like is where and we spoke about this last time. When the MCU has kind of like this super tight bond on 
or bind rather on like how the story needs to be told and like what beats need to be hit and what characters to have and they're storyboarding it and like the storyboarding company is literally like making the movie for people but now what dc seems to be doing is be more defined find more like auteur style directors where each one kind of feels more unique and like there might be some intersections, but each universe is extremely unique. I kind of want to know from your perspective, because you said you're not really into comic book movies and not really into like the Hollywood thing. Like what is your perspective on this? What do you think is actually a better way to go? Cause now you can see two. So yeah, I, I, cause I, I, I'm familiar with Marvel, but as I always say, I, I've really not seen any of them, but I, I their movies are, they're colorful, they're fun, and they have every actor that you know in them. And it's that has a very broad appeal. And yeah, DC, wasn't it seeming like they were shooting themselves in the foot with all these dark takes because people weren't liking it, right? At least they weren't doing yeah, Marvel numbers. Yeah, they didn't like numbers. that particular universe. Yeah, they, weren't, they didn't like that particular universe. They, they, they felt like that wasn't the right way to go for that universe. And then they kind of tried to brighten it up with Aquaman. And then with Wonder Woman 1984. And Suicide Squad. And, yeah, and it, and I think that uh, – and then Suicide Squad affected Justice League's take, and they tried to really lighten that up, and it's too much. And they kind of went – and they, they, they overcorrected and went so far in the goofy, wacky direction. Although we're goofier and wackier and more colorful than Marvel, and we kind of just went – we don't want that either. <laughs> but, I mean, like more people like Aquaman. Don't get me wrong; it works great for Aquaman because Aquaman is ridiculous. But I, it's like Thor, right? That the Thor's a yeah. throwaway. The Ragnarok, not a throwaway, but well, it, Ragnarok it worked better, right? Because it was like it was this fish out of water thing. Aquaman's literally a fish out of water story. <laughs> fish in water. Yeah. Uh, yeah, fish in water story. Yeah. Fish man. But when they went with Wonder Woman 1984, it, it felt like too jokey. It, it felt too much. It felt like there's like a lot of story beats that don't make sense. Like the, the boyfriend that comes back and is like possessing somebody's body. Like it's the, like it's ghost. Like they were kind of like, almost like trying to reference all these different kind of like niche eighties things. And it was so melodramatic and over the top in some of the performances that it was just like ridiculous and it was at such a different tone than the first movie so, so D- dc as done by john hughes is 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 that what we're talking here it kind of feels <laughs> like that a little bit but i i like the idea and i think that it's it's a, an idea that kind of was born out of necessity where they go we have all these different takes of movies what if that was our thing what if it was the alternate universe thing because i think the the big problem of our generation is we have a lot of regret. Oh, we wish things did. If we would have made this decision, this wouldn't have happened. But it's not like our generation could have predicted like a pandemic or who was going to be president or an economic <laughs> crisis or like anything like that or, or like any of these other problems. And we look back on our lives and we go, oh, things were so much better when we were in our 20s and da 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 da. And I think DC has this opportunity to go, well, we can make a whole universe out of that. What if Bruce Willis was Batman? Like, they could literally do that and go, this is a one-off thing where this is all we do. And it's going to be these what-if scenarios that we can do till the end of time because now you can out, you can live out your whole what-if fantasy all day long and marathon it. Well, I want to know – I want the John Barenthal wow. Punisher. You get to have it in Marvel, right, with certain things. But once they move on to a different person – it's kind of like, well, that, that, that era is over and we're onto this new thing and you kind of have to watch and get sucked into everything. So I think Marvel and Disney makes more money with their strategy. 
But I think DC wins more critics' hearts and more movie fans' hearts by going, we're going to give this director his vision. Because when he read the comic, this is what he came up with, and we really liked it. So we're going to have this vision be brought to life. And I think that is a strategy Marvel has 100% walked away from. And they can get filmmakers and writers and actors and everybody that was disenfranchised by the idea of working with Marvel and go, oh, it's not all like that? No, no, we'll actually let you do the comic book movie thing that you wanted to do. I, I think that's how you suck people in, into working with you at Warner Brothers. That's a very interesting contrast to say that. So what? There's like 30 Marvel movies, right? And they're all written to cohere with each other. Whereas yes. D- DC might be trying to give you 30 movies, but like you said, it's only seven characters, but they're all origin stories or you know, a one-off what-if scenario that, yeah, if you want to do – what if Batman was like Sin City? Then, yeah, you go get Bruce Willis and Robert Rodriguez and you can make that movie. And yeah, you start getting like Gotham by a Gaslight can be adapted for a movie and it's like this is steampunk Batman. So this is – it's like the inside out version of MC then where you're trying to – yeah, I, I, I don't know what they're left with because – so the mistake they made was to make it all dark. And I mean from what I've seen, a lot of these movies look pukey and green screen laden <laughs> and I just – I can't – yeah, it just always looks like – It's too much for you. It's it looks so like, much sensory overload. For you. Yeah, it's just like a, a computer crashing in, in the background and Superman's flying around off of buildings. And I, it just doesn't look real. And I get that it's like comic books and stuff. But like, I don't know. That's why I like the, the uh, Batman. Uh, I was actually excited about the, the Affleck Batman that he was going to direct. I thought that would be interesting. And I'm a fan of the town. So he knows his way around like a crime thriller. It would have been a cool thing to see. But I mean, obviously, Matt Reeves. He's – how many of the Planet of the Apes movies are there? Three of them? Yeah, but he, he did two and three. He didn't do the first one. He, he didn't do the first one. OK. But he really cut out a name for himself where, like you said, he got called into DC basically to save their Batman project. He brought in Robert Pattinson who I, I love. I, I actually think he's a fantastic actor. I know a lot of people are split on him. But I, I think he's perfect for this Batman, especially if he's going to be younger, brooding, not as mature as, say, the Christian Bale and more vengeful. Um, I, I'm down for that. That sounds to me a movie I will go see for sure. Where I every Marvel movie, like I'm not going to see the Suicide Squad. Uh, I saw Suicide Squad and thought it was as bad as everyone said, and couldn't believe it got really made <laughs> and squandered like that. And I guess they're trying to now with Suicide Squad go back and get that one right. This is like a very meta. These is two meta universes that are trying to come to terms with like. Yeah, the postmodern sensibilities where everything has to be either fed into itself or cut away from itself and almost abstracted. Um, It's just fascinating. And and this is with comic book movies, which people 20 years ago, you couldn't really get one made. No, you couldn't. And what happens is – and this happens with every art form, right? Like where we talk about – we talked about it last time with the democratization of the art form, right? But also the respect comes with it. Because after a while, it's like there's people that grew up with comic books in their hands since they were kids, and they don't look at it as trash. They look at it as these were the books that taught me how to read 
or these are the books that taught me about these story arcs or how to do this or that. And I got interested in drawing. And then all of a sudden you've got graphic novels winning Pulitzer Prizes and Hugo Awards and things like that. And they're beating out regular novels because they're doing things that are so out there. I mean, that's kind of why I think a lot of films started looking at comic books in the late 80s, early 90s and going, wait a second, these stories aren't just like throwaway dime store things anymore. It's not just like, you know, adventuring around in like, you know, the super friends. Like this is, this is different. This is like, I mean, The Crow. When people started reading The Crow in Hollywood, they were like, holy and everything with the crow, right? Like there, the crow. There was the crow. There was Tank Girl. Like there was this kind of push for like really violent comics. Dark Man. Dark Man. Yeah, there was there was like really really big push for that. But the respect that you're really looking for in an art form, it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience because you have to wait for those people that grow up with it and see the arcs and go, wait, this is where I can come in. And there's always going to be weird eras of like super ultra violence or super this or super that because it's always trying to figure out itself. But there's beautiful graphic novels about, you know, the experience of growing up in Pakistan during the war on terror. Like, I mean, like you could, if you go to the library, go to your local library, everybody, go to the graphic novel section. You're going to find stuff. You're going to be like, wait a second. This is a graphic novel. This is insane. Like, like a history of violence. Nobody remembers that that is a comic book adaptation. That is an yeah, insane I love that movie. movie. It's yeah. fantastic. So, I mean, like, that's the stuff that's been bouncing around for a while. You don't really get a chance to do that if everything has to coincide together and it all has to be in a PG-13 rating and it all has to have these characters and it has to have this beat and this end credit scene and it has to be shot like this and it has to work with these people and we have this contract. Like, yeah, from an overarching narrative standpoint – from like a, a dungeon master standpoint, that's really attractive, I think, to have that much control over the story. But from an artist standpoint like in the golden age. Yeah. If you but from an artist standpoint, when you're looking at it, it, it it's like, well, where's my freedom? What am I gonna get to do? Well, you don't get to do anything, it's this thing, but it's gonna be your name on it. And it's like, well, then what's my what's the point of me being here? It could have been anybody. Like it's you just want my name so you get an extra what, a hundred thousand dollars at ticket sales? Like that's what I'm here for? Like, that's what it feels like. But with DC, if they're going to go, no, no, we heard you really love this graphic novel, Arkham Asylum by Grant Morrison. We heard you really love it. We want you to do the Arkham Asylum. And it's going to be rated R. You get to do that because it's a one-off thing. And no one and no one has to, like, look at it and go, oh, this is for kids because it's this character. Because people get to go, well, this is his version and he always does those things. This is like a horror movie that just happens to have this character in it. I think that's something that people have wanted for a very long time we're about to have that in the next two years. So, so how, how about Wolverine? How that figures in here, right? Well, that's Marvel. Right. I'm just saying with this, if we're talking about the, the DC Marvel universe at large, it seems cause that was, I mean, they had the black and white edit of that, right. For like the Noari stuff. And then it was, everyone was talking about how it's the shot, like a Western. You're talking about Logan. Logan. I'm sorry. I was saying Wolverine. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I have to catch up on all these. Yes. Logan, which I have still, I, I can't, I, I haven't been able to actually still to this day, bring myself to fully watch the entire film because like, I know how it ends. It's not like, I don't know how this movie ends. It's been out for a while. I just can't bring myself to watch that happen. Yet, like I always get close, and I'm like, I can't do it, and I just, I can't, I can't finish it because I don't, I don't want that era to end. But that's a really great example of what you could do if you were Marvel and went, well, we can do these one-off stories too. You know, you you could have Old Man Logan 
exist in that universe, you know, because now, well, now there's multiverses. And I think that's what they're trying to set up with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is go, well, this is actually part of the multiverse, but it's it's this far-flung one that no one's ever going to go to, except for this one time we're going to visit there. Like, we're going to get to do that if DC's strategy works, Marvel will start doing that, and they'll have both. And it's going to be a weird competition, but DC is going to do it first, and they're going to find the success in it first, I think. And, yeah, the Joker already was like, yeah, we're going to do a Scorsese 70s crime movie, but it's going to be an origin story of a familiar comic character. And that was like, I mean, even the director, uh, Phillips, he was talking about it in the press as he knew he had to Trojan horse his story that he wanted to tell into an entity, like a, 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 an already paid for uh like comic entity uh because mm-hmm. that's the way to get things made and so he was able to make the most scorsese-ish <laughs> film version of a movie that i mean you could have taken it a hundred different ways and it just it's like an interesting it's it's like an exercise like you said uh fan service it's like what if and they're compelling i mean wh- how far are we away from uh marvel doing twitter polls for what movie you want next and they're going to start greenlighting stuff based on uh, votes or something. Like it's American Idol. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like serious because that uh, people talk about the, the fan service is because all these companies, they're on social media. They know what people are talking about. They know what trends. I mean, we talked about it before. Yoda's baby Yoda's designed to look like a baby kitten that looks great on Instagram. Uh, so that is like one of the most liked images. It's too easy. And they're, they're going into these things with that knowledge. Well, I think that's as good as places I need to get started. Welcome, everybody, to Guerrilla Film History Now. I'm Pete. And I'm Mark. And this is a show where two film nerds use old nitrate film stock to take out a movie theater full of Nazis. Good times. It's real hot, though. <laughs> yeah, I had fun. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I know we're, uh, we kind of are getting a late start again. I love these talks that we do in the beginning though. I can't not do that. It's, they're actually <laughs> no, so good. great because it's really cool to like just analyze it in that manner, really naturally. Do you have anything to plug before we get started? Just, yeah, uh, listen to this, which you already are, and then go back and listen to the other ones. Uh, but besides <laughs> that, um, you can, uh, find me on my own Instagram at Mark Rupendahl. I put, uh, up some weird art and uh poems and polaroids um and i'm also uh at right brain studios uh it's an art collective i contribute to so uh yeah that's where you can find me and you can find me over at dorkdaily.com i'm your gamer dad uh i'm gaming with my kids doing reviews of older games that i probably should have played by now i'm also a writer you can find my stuff on Amazon. Uh, Where Skin Once Was is out on Amazon right now. You can get that for 99 cents, that little short. Uh, it's 34 pages, uh, real short read, uh, but it would really help the show if you got that. And if you're a Kindle Unlimited subscriber, it's free. So please come check that out. Now, uh, if you want to reach out to chat about ideas for the show, you can email us at gfilmhistorynow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at gfilmhistorynow. Uh, that is gfilmhistorynow. Now, we have a bit of a different format for today because we've got a pretty big topic. You'll be going over World War II and all the propaganda and wartime fun to be had during the war to end all a lot wars. Of fun. 
But before that, we're going to go over... It's the golden age. Golden age. We've got singing and dancing and big sets and lighting and secret sex club and all these drugs. Just take some black bettys, you'll be fine. Shake it off. We got to do some dancing. Okay, just Well, maybe not just yet. Uh, but I really wanted to do that song really bad. <laughs> so um, I think it was worth it. I'm gonna totally clip it, it and loop it. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna you're just gonna turn it into a beat. Yeah, yeah. Put it out on on SoundCloud and see what happens. <laughs> I, I so I really I think we should start really when the silent era is alive and well, really, which is like at the end of the 1920s, specifically 1927, 1928. That's the year the jazz singer came out. And this was the first major release of a film with sound. It was done using a Vitaphone, which was the best technology they had at the time to record sound to disc. And it was super popular. The line, you ain't heard nothing yet, was not just this great marketing line for the film, which was all built around the concept of we got to show off what we can do now. But it became the statement of the studio who helmed it, Warner Brothers, that there was a lot more to come. Now, the Vitaphone was good. But it was just at the cusp of a new generation of stuff that was going to be performing better. And since Edison and the Trust set up a nice little modus operandi for page, uh, patents, this became the new patent war. So in the U.S., Western Electric actually went out over General Electric when they developed the Vitaphone. But it was sound a disc. So basically the soundtrack would play and you'd have to sync it to the film. So it's the same idea as the live performers and music and all that, but just with a, a disc that can be shipped with the film. This allowed Warner Brothers to own everything from the top down at a cheaper cost. But soon, there were two guys, Theodore Case and Earl Spoonable. Spawnable? <laughs> I, I don't know how to say his name. It's Spoonable. I'm going to say Spawnable because I don't think he was very Spoonable. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they created the Case Spawnable system of sound on film. And this caught the attention of Fox. Now, they went all in on sound on film, but they couldn't get any major talent since Warner Brothers had already signed everyone for their Vitaphone recordings thanks to something called vertical integration. <laughs> but what Warner Brothers hadn't thought about was newsreels. So Fox gets exclusives like Lindenberg's Flight to Paris, and they're able to record straight to the film with the sound. RCA had their own thing being developed called Photophone. And that was a subsidiary of General Electric and Westinghouse. So that was Edison's baby to fight Western Electric. And of course, sound on tape one. So a lot of the information that I got for this episode actually uh, came from uh, CineCollege.net and Diva Daniela. And um, there's this whole piece on there about the era of sound, which I used. And it's going to be in the show notes. I'm going to make sure I have a link for it. Here's a quote from the article. The five largest producing companies in Hollywood at this point, MGM, Universal, First National, Paramount, and Producers Distributing Corporation, proceeded cautiously in relation to sound. If firms acted individually, they might choose incompatible equipment. Since each firm's theaters had to show other companies' films, the lack of a common standard would hurt business. In February 1927, they signed the Big Five Agreement, pledging to act together in adopting whichever sound system proved most advantageous. The two leading choices were the Western Electric Sound on Disc and the RCA Sound on Film Systems. By 1928, Western Electric had also had a sound on film technology available and offered more favorable contracts. The Big Five opted for Western Electric's system. 
So because they won the race twice. <laughs> well, actually, no, they really ran it. They, they won it first. They, they saw the mistakes happening on sound on film and probably rectified it. But they already had all the major contracts. So they were just able to come in and just sweep everybody up because they went, well, you're already kind of with us. So, yeah. right. Why stop now? Exactly. Why stop now? So in the end, Edison lost out twice to Western Electric, which should make that. you. I knew that was going to make you so happy. <laughs> Warming my heart. Like, uh, you're just sitting there like, uh, you know what? I need a gin and tonic to just sip on while I'm feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope he I hope he cried on just endlessly because that man. Well, yeah, I don't want to sidetrack, but he's a fashion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also sure that Edison's stellar reputation at the time had nothing to do with the fact that he lost out on these deals. <laughs> yeah, I think by this time people were trying to get away from business dealings with him. Um, yeah. Hey, uh, <laughs> aren't you the guy who killed an elephant and filmed it in front of a live audience? <laughs> and what you, uh, did you kill on this reel? Cockatoos in front of preschoolers while you drank gin and laughed? <laughs> Look, Hollywood's only been around a couple of years, Buck, but uh, in this town we only let certain very important people murder animals on film, and they pay a lot of money to do it. <laughs> it's like a country club. <laughs> Pay to play. Pay to slay, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah, here, here. Have a, have a lovely Lucy. <laughs> I don't know if that was a drug. I'm just making up a name that probably existed. Uh, yeah, it definitely did. <laughs> I'm not going to go too much into the international scene for sound, but I do want to encourage everyone to check out the CineCollege.net article in the show notes because it's extremely thorough but very digestible. But we also have to cover a ton, so maybe we can revisit it in a later episode more in depth. If there's interest, we'll do like the international scene just as its own thing. So now with sound on film here, we've got everything in one package. There's no more performing with the film. There's no syncing to the disc, the movie. Ugh, there's no like, um, what am I trying to say? There's I'm, there's no syncing to the disc for the movie. And, and like, hoping the record doesn't skip or anything like that. It's just all in the reel ready to go. This uh, technological leap came at the cost of thousands and thousands of jobs, particularly for musicians. All right, here's another quote from that article. The elimination of cinema orchestras was the first, uh, was first of all, a, so a social tragedy. If I can learn how to read during this podcast, <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> in the 1920s, the cinema had become the world's largest employer of musicians. Thousands wow. of musicians were sacked, while many vaudeville artists lost an important source of employment. Wow. Only the most luxurious movie theaters maintained a reduced orchestra and a sideshow with live entertainment. A few even continued this tradition even into the 1960s. The greatest musical talents could find a job on the radio, but a majority had no alternative. Their wholesale dismissal could not have come at a worse time since it coincided with the outbreak of an economic depression and the spread of unemployment. This is really crazy, right? Because now, if you think about it, the... the Shift goes now from we need to get all these people to do this performing and do all this kind of dramatization with the film to we can do that all on film now. So the, the shift in labor goes from post-production, theatrical, whatever, to pre-production, we need to have everything in writing now to plan it out. So you actually get a lot of playwrights because why? Now we can hear the dialogue. Now it's a more natural thing. We need people who know how to write for actors. 
that are performing in front of people. You can't just have people that do silent films writing all the dialogue anymore because people can't contextualize it in their head because they're reading it and like voicing it in their head or whatever. Uh, Singing in the Rain, for example, is, is a Golden Age musical. The whole plot is around the transition to the talkies. There's a few others as well. Great movie. Yeah, but it isn't just about sound or how lines are written. What makes this become the golden age now is because there's a ton of established rules that create the art form like as it is today. So the whole idea of continuity editing, for example, with the hallmark of a 180-degree rule where you, you don't break that line. Cinematic space where you have the feeling that the shot continues past the frame you're seeing. That's why there's like a lot of human-centered close-ups and like a lot of stuff on the face because it made the set feel like a lot bigger and it, you didn't see like the lines or edges of anything, you know? So it felt like the house kind of existed for real, right? And with all those screenwriters, you start getting more narrative logic to films. So you start getting like that classic plot structure of like the rising action, climax, falling action, a resolution. It, it was there to an extent with silent films, but I, uh, silent films had a little more wiggle room with experimentation. When you start like trying to tell a story through characters and it's not being explained to you, you kind of have to have that structure for people to get around. So they start looking a lot more to theater again, kind of looking back to the past, which is actually a really cool thing. Yeah, very. So, okay, so I'm, I'm going to test you here. How many names of Golden Age films can you say? And uh, nine, uh, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Oh, jeez. Okay. Three, um, two, one, go. Uh, thinking of the start, we got Steamboat Willie. Um how about the horror movies, Dracula, Frankenstein, um, got Freaks, uh, with, yeah, the, the Circus Freaks movie, um, how about some noirs? The Postman Always Rings Twice, John Garfield, amazing, amazing movie, uh, The Lost Weekend, Billy Wilder, that's one of the best movies you'll ever see about alcoholism. Um, I think that's 30. Yeah, <laughs> I think that is. I think we might have gone a little over. I wanted to get you one more in, but yeah, that's good. That was good. Yeah, and I got to make a mention for "To Have and Have Not," which is uh, an adaptation of uh, a, a great Ernest Hemingway novel, and it's uh, Bogart and Lauren Bacall, uh, which I, I recently saw on the big screen, um, and it was just fantastic. Uh, just a great old Hollywood movie, very much like Casablanca, which is the easiest one. I should have said that. I miss Casablanca. Yeah, well, but yeah, no, that yeah. is golden age. <laughs> uh, now, but, yeah, but what's cool about that is like you have like different genres and stuff with the ones that you chose, but they all kind of have that uniform style and sensibility about them to try to create this better illusion. And it's kind of rooted in this idea of Renaissance realism, right? We have all of these things for fine art or whatever, you start getting like those super elaborate backdrops that look real, but really it's just the soundstage. And it's it, like... Part, making the illusion is like part of the adventure of making the film or part of the piece of it. So you start really getting like realism because it's like, well, how do we make this illusion the most real? I want to make a painting that looks like a photograph off of a phone of a lake with a lily in it. Like that is the level of artistry that we're talking about here. You do have some fantastic elements with story and maybe with acting, but at its heart, even the even like the most fantastical stuff has is rooted in realism. 
you know? The actual, like, real, real stuff doesn't come until after World War II, when you start getting the Cinema Veritas movement and, like, from World War II newsreels and, like, things like that, which I'm sure we're going to get into at some point. But, like... Yeah, yeah, I hope yeah, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but th- there, um, there was kind of, like, still this sense of melodrama, especially when you think about, like, bigger epics in the earlier parts of the Golden Age, right? In, like, the early 30s. It, it really felt like that and, and also it's about the stars it wasn't necessarily about the movie per se i mean i mean, I mean it was but it, it's not like you were going to go see the movie because the character or story wasn't being done but because humphrey bogart or katherine hepburn was in it and you loved them and you were a fan of them and they were in all of the paramount or warner brothers pictures and you wanted to go support them like that was really what it was and the the studios would of course they love this because they were crafting it from the top but like this is where you get actors and actresses like basically being set up as a couple just to to advertise for a film so this is like a supposed to look like an organic way to advertise a film you get uh i mean humphrey bogart lauren bacall met on the set of uh to have and have not i believe um and they went on to do a couple more films together and their romance is like uh you know a hollywood uh love story um and that so that's like selling the movie before you you even make the movie is that once you attach certain stars you know you have a built-in audience everyone's going to go see a Cary Grant movie um whether it's a Hitchcock one or not yeah it, the the studios understood the 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 power they had with their star system and uh they used it they definitely used it and 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 also because it was about the stars they got caught up in all these like giant contracts where they were just exclusive to a studio for a number of years right so they, they weren't maybe be to... traded. Sometimes they'd be traded, and I'll get your guy for this movie if you yeah, have ours. Yeah, it was like the because... roster of a sports team. That's exactly yeah, it yeah, like yeah. Like trades and da da da. It was like all shady crap. Like that's what it was. Yeah, director goes to the other studio now. The actor wants to go with them and all this stuff. It was yeah. The, you could write soap operas about this stuff. Well, yeah, I mean there were actually a lot of golden age movies that were about Hollywood. And about that, like, like they were kind of venting, but also like the shady celebrating. Kind of perpe- yeah, me in some cases celebrating. Yeah, but that shady behavior kind of like perpetuated itself within Hollywood. I mean, we we talked about it last time. They were trying to get away from Edison, but like, at what cost were they getting away from him and like all the patent wars and stuff? Because if we're taking some like, if it was like shady back alley deals and it's like mob stuff and this do anything for the business, like that's coming from the top down. Like, like was that really? worth it because like it wasn't before long before hollywood was just like this glittering oasis of stuff that like was hiding this stagnant filth underneath that was kind of not just unlike be- las vegas yeah like it literally was like that and then like it, it kind of was being like suppressed and not really being talked about and then after the war everybody comes back and that doesn't really go away and it just kind of gets worse because no one goes to therapy yet and we're just eating steak and <laughs> drinking whiskey and sweating through the night like a man and then like the only Pete, way wait. we get there is like getting our rocks off is like ah black dahlia murder ah! <laughs> I, I, I gotta talk to you off air because I gotta <laughs> change my life I think uh, <laughs> that's how I've been dealing with everything I'm sorry uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're speaking to me, Peter, in a way that I don't, I don't, I don't like. It, I, if I feel it in my gut that uh, I'm, I was born in in the wrong era. <laughs> 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 but no, but like, 
But that's that's what it was. It was, and then they came back and they couldn't. They they tried to go back to like business as normal and still hide more stuff. Plus the stuff they saw from the war, and it's just like that's how film noir gets made, right? Like that. That's one what one a- quarter, one quarter of the, of the male actors, filmmakers, we call them talent in Hollywood, uh, ended up enlisting in the war by the end of it, which is crazy. One of every four people off a movie set was was shipped off. Yeah, and we're going to get yeah. more to that after the break because we're going to stop right here on December 7th, 1941, a day that shall live in infamy as the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, and we officially enter World War II. And when we come back from the break, we'll be coming back to the war. See you soon. Our boys in blue are fighting over in Germany and in the Pacific Theater. We've got Mark Rubendahl giving us the news. I wish I could do a, a good bro call right now, uh, <laughs> but you'll have to just deal with. It's not live. <laughs> <laughs> you sounded like those uh, the drunks we talked about last week with just the <laughs> liquor just pouring out and they're just drooping their mouths so they can't really pronounce it. It's like Winston Churchill speak. I had so much brandy at lunch. I can't feel my chin. <laughs> you know, half these guys that these you know were spearheading this war effort, like Winston Churchill, he's a weeble wobble filled with rotting clotted cream. I swear, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> just the hot the hot air that that chemical reaction produces within him uh, just comes out, and people are like, "Wow, this man's so wise." He was an <laughs> and he sucked at war. Um, and asked the Bengalis about Winston Churchill. And our uh, established <laughs> audience goes from 35 <laughs> to 4. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> you know, Mark, Mark's opinions are not that of Guerrilla Film Mystery Now. And, uh, no, the, our, our opinions are our opinions. But, like, oh, my God. That was, like, shock jock humor for me. <laughs> it was amazing. I come from a sports radio background, so. Yeah, I you could know. hear it. <laughs> I know how to push a button or two. I come from an audiobook background, so mine's very, very different. <laughs> this is what makes us perfect for each other. <laughs> oh yeah, no, this is great. I love it. But no, so but so now we're in we're in World War II now, right? So we're in the war. Yes. So you know what war means, Pete? Well, besides countless deaths, unspeakable acts of depravity, and bombs incinerating whole towns, villages, and cities, it also means it's propaganda time. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> now, last week we discussed how newsreels were used to disseminate pertinent information about the war to the public. We also saw how this was simultaneously used as a morale-tempering manipulation and slanted storytelling, often highlighting the more joyous and frivolous, sometimes even sensationalized side of America. With World War II, we have all these same forces at work. And in fact, it's, it's some of the same people, um, mostly men, obviously, at this time, but there, there were definitely women part of 
both World War One and World War Two efforts. Um, but this isn't new by World War Two. It is the war that is a sequel from yeah, fifteen twenty years before. And in a lot of ways, we're going to see, especially the U.S. Uh, and the Allied forces, but we'll also see the Axis how they use propaganda. This propaganda is as old as anything, as we discussed last week. Um, it's just new technologies, new war, new politics, new circumstances that you now have to kind of triangulate and figure out. And our first example of an ally uh, piece of propaganda was a film called The Lion Has Wings. This was filmed by uh, the British. Uh, This was a British production. Two months after the invasion of Germany into Poland, the the British within two days, uh, along with France, had declared uh, war on Germany. And a mere two months later, they had their first piece of film. Allegedly, was shot in five days. The lion has wings. Five days? It, it, five days. I, I saw twelve. Yeah, it's it, it's about a week production. Uh, they had five units uh, working at once to expedite this process. It was all hands on deck. Oh my god, that's insane for that time. That's insane now. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, all my research, it, it, it does reiterate how both the British and the Americans didn't want to, at least they didn't want to be perceived as doing propaganda. But once the British entered into the war, they had to contend with all this German Nazi propaganda. And the Nazis were, unfortunately, great with propaganda. And so as soon as you enter into this war, you you are also not only entering into the warfare of the air and on the ground, but you're entering into this information warfare. I hate to say it, but Alex Jones is right about that. There is a war on <laughs> for your mind. Uh, we're gonna cut the war makes the frogs <laughs> gay! <laughs> <laughs> uh, show me oh, evidence. I'm getting so quick. Cancel everything. Cancel it. Close the bank accounts. I wish Chris Farley was still alive to do the uh, the Mike <laughs> Dickens bit and where he's yeah. Alex Jones on. Oh my god, that would be amazing. Oh, uh, and just having a heart attack every every segment uh, and just pounding his chest. <laughs> uh, don't worry, it'll pass. It'll pass. Oh my god. Actually, you know who else would be good? Who's actually still alive? Will Sasso. Will Sasso would be oh, so good at being Alex wow. Jones. Wow! All right, our side project. But, but we, yeah, we're gonna... to kind of get back on topic though, like, so but this <laughs> is really where like Tarantino gets his like Inglorious Bastards propaganda film idea for the the Nazi like theater scene, right? Like it, it's it's basically like the the German version of A Lion Has Wings, right? In if you remember about uh, Inglorious Bastards, um, there's that. <laughs> I'll never forget being in the theater and Michael Myers all of a sudden is in this movie. But if you remember that scene, there's actually a guy playing Winston Churchill who's sitting at a piano in this darkened corner just smoking a cigar. I think he grunts once or twice. The dialogue is taking place between Michael Myers and uh, Michael Fassenbender. Michael Fassenbender's character has specifically been recruited because he's an American film critic. And Tarantino, of course, probably loved writing this scene because he got to have this dialogue about whether David O. Selznick or, you know, which which studio head is more likely to portray the war this way. Um, so those those were the nuances for that mission because they were trying to smuggle an actress in as uh, a spy using her fame. And so what that movie is hitting on all over the place is how powerful the, the, the image is. In a movie about World War II, you see that, that, that bell tower scene. Uh, that is as propaganda as it gets, and that's the kind of stuff that the Nazis were producing. 
If you go back to 1935, a little bit before the war, we have Lenny Riefenstahl. She's a, a female filmmaker who collaborated with the Nazis and made many pictures for him. But the most famous one is called A Triumph, The Triumph of the Will, A Triumph of the Will. And you've undoubtedly seen clips of this. It's a lot of Nazis goose-stepping in, in like a parade fashion as millions of people cheer them on and you get these like grand aerial shots and moving camera. It's, it's, it's really creepy to watch. It's like watching like a horror movie. This was really a, a change of the guard when this film came out because everyone in the world over understood the true power of film now. And to what you were saying, Pete, because now this isn't the newsreel. Like we are now, we have war that we have photographers and filmmakers going to the front line and documenting this. We have some Hollywood elites who go there to serve their country by making these propaganda films. It's really an unprecedented time. And when Riefenstahl made that movie, it, it, it did. It changed everything. And that was in 1935. By 19, just the next year, 1936, Germany had the Olympics. And if you think about how crazy that is, you have a madman on the brink of World War heading like an Olympic committee. And he thought that this was going to be an opportunity for the Aryan race to prove itself as the superior athletic specimen <laughs> on earth. And luckily, American sprinter, a black guy, Jesse Owens, uh, ran holes through that because he he beat Germans in one gold in four track and field events. And apparently that angered Hitler very much. But besides that, like that kind <laughs> of poked a hole in it for him. But he understood that having the Olympics was an ability for him to, on a world stage, portray, the wor- uh, portray Germany as filled with smiling faces and and people who just were just like you and me, uh, just taken in a sporting event. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that where those events were also being held, I mean, they were being staged and dressed up, and the people that were there were moved in there, and undesirable people they didn't want to be seen were moved away. That whole area was a set, and and they were just like, yeah, go ahead, film, do whatever you want, and they made it look like. And feel That's a like great way to put it. It, it. it was, but but what was happening was it was a film set. It was it was an illusion, and so many people were willing to accept film at face value at that point and go, "Well, there's the footage. That's it." Like it, it, there's there's a problem now with like deep fakes and things like that, or, or, or special effects, and we look back and and we think about, "Well, why didn't they get it?" Well. We didn't understand that Buster Keaton's shot of him hanging on a clock was a special effect until a few years ago. (laughs) I I mean, that's how good he shot that scene. And that was fake. And people thought it was real to the point where Jackie Chan's career is wholly based on the man. It's it's magic. So, yeah. So, I I mean, it it, it isn't hard to believe, at least from my perspective, when I see that stuff to go, oh, yeah, that's a set. But back then, that didn't feel like that. That felt like oh, that this really is like this wonderful... And, and that kind of makes it more horrific. That that makes it worse because you realize how much control was happening in, in, in Germany at the time and then eventually other parts of Europe with the war. And, and really, it's all about propaganda. It's all That was all to do the most elaborate propaganda stunt in human history. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's really incredible to think about and it. He and got, he got every country to film it for him. Now, when other people that were quote-unquote undesirables won those events, he couldn't edit them out. That was the gamble. 
that he played, right? Okay, but I, if, yes. If everybody else, he he was so good at propaganda in terms of this, which I f-ing hate. I hate yeah, him and Goebbels. I hate. He was. If we make it, there's always going to be a question of is it real? But if they make it, if they film it, if this happens, then they have to question what they were seeing, which is a little different because they were there, they were experiencing it, and they're going over to the world going, oh my God, that's not, no, no, all those crazy stories, it's all BS. I was there, I saw everything. That stuff happens now. And it, it, it really is that invasive to you and to the art form. Absolutely, and we're, because we're talking about a technology that's been around maybe 50 years, but I mean, we're still, in the sound era getting kicked off here and into the 30s, uh, into the 40s, they're still kind of codifying this language of film. And that's why something that comes along like The Triumph of the Will, it, everything I read about it, they they mentioned how it like unleashed the potential. And it was kind of the, the, the A-bomb before the A-bomb where it was, how do you infect as many people as you can? And it's propaganda. It's film, it's newsreels, it's movies you make through Hollywood. And that's an excellent point you make that if Hitler was able to get the other nations to film and he was controlling the set, but they didn't necessarily know that. And so he was allowed to take those gambles that if if, if an event didn't go the Germans way, well, oh, well, because he was really just trying to show like, look at our functioning government and our, our functioning people yeah i think i think that he was embarrassed by how that went i'm happy he was embarrassed how that went i think yeah. but the overall goal that he wanted to achieve was achieved and that was the most Absolutely. unfortunate part and then um, and then you look at like japanese propaganda japanese propaganda was all about the samurai stuff yeah it was all about seppuku but the seppuku didn't even become like popular until wartime was over for samurais they weren't even allowed to practice they couldn't fight to the death anymore. Wow. So they, they couldn't fight to the death anymore. It was illegal. Western nations came in and said, no, you can't do that. You can't use your swords anymore. They were all ceremonial. So these battles and duels and stuff, when you lost, well, how do you fight to the death? Well, I lost, so now I got to, huh, and seppuku, because I was dishonored, and I would have died. You would have sliced me open anyway. So is there a samurai a samurai fight club movie in here somewhere where these samurai who can't kill each other get together and just whack the shit out of each other with the broadside of their swords and like oh, just no. get out there their male no, like, rage? If you, if you want to know, what, <laughs> if you really want to know what samurais were like, you should read the Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi because he's like one of the oldest living guys that survived. I mean, like he he survived multiple wars. He survived being a fugitive for a number of years. Um, he wow. basically ran away from home. His father beat the crap out of him, ran away from home when he was like nine or 10, started like dueling in the streets when he was like an early teen. But there was a point where he was in a war and he lost. They lo- He was on the losing side, but he didn't stay to fight to the death. He ran. He was like, screw this. He saw they were, le- he, they were losing and he went into the woods and that's what caused him to be wanted. But he was like, what's the point in doing that? Like, I'm going to lose. Because oh, he went AWOL. But, but the point is to live, not to die like this. Like, this is ridiculous. I, he, he invented an entire fighting style of, like, two swords and, like, fighting with all these different weapons and all that kind of stuff. Like, he was, he was amazing. But, I mean, like, that, but his image, right, was taken and put in front of the Japanese pilots, and they're like, he would have killed himself. But this dude wouldn't die in a war on the losing side. He'd be like, and go, because he's like, no, my life is more important than that. 
That's fat. So he was able to transcend his training and even the like the propaganda. Yeah, but I mean, like, so but the war, the pilots were like, no, I have to do this because this is what Musashi or like these other big guys would have done. But a majority of those guys never did that. That was that was bred into them through propaganda of the Japanese war machine. Like that's all that was. So that their their people would fight to the and and that's why everyone was like, oh my god, they're crazy because they're willing to kill themselves. But it was it was the same deal that the Germans were doing. It was the same culture. They were able to dig deep and go, this is part of our nature. This is part of our culture. This is part of our nation. This is a story tradition and turn it into a weapon. You know, like the idea of Germans like being proud in their nation and nationalism. He just he, he turned it up to a, a million. He didn't even turn it up to 11. He turned it up to a million. Yeah, all the way in an onslaught. And when you're talking about the world wars, you're talking about a lot of like national interests. And everyone's like, no, we've got to get ours. We've got to do this. And there were alliances. There were things like that. But there, there, there was like this sense of we've got to show people what we're worth in war and nobody realized how horrible war was for some reason after all these wars because all we did was glorify it and in and, and everything it was like like when guys were going into world war one in britain they thought they were going into like king arthur and like they were the knights like that's what they thought and then they saw the trenches and they're like oh my god this is a nightmare you, you got to think a lot of these soldiers yeah they are they're thinking of the glory from songs of the past and in the movies right that you would grow up with these men would have been when they think of glory in war they're probably thinking of like you said uh, stories from king arthur or some painting they saw i, I mean and, and then to talk about like uh i do want to touch on this because there is a movie about it a wonderful tom hanks movie about it Oh, God. CIA's favorite asset, Tom Hanks. (laughs) About women in baseball. Because now all the guys, it's not just film and stuff. It's your, it's your, because you're really into sports a lot more than I am. This is, this is when all the, all the big guys are gone and now women are playing baseball for the guys because the guys are overseas. And his, his character is like real passive aggressive, right? Cause he's a drunk and what does he have some injury? So he couldn't go. And so he feels emasculated and, and then he he's a woman told he has he to go. Yeah. Time. You got to go do, uh, you got to go coach his woman's team. Uh, and he learns how to be like a more balanced human being at the end. Yeah, he gets in touch with the other side. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like that. But that's like that. That happened. I mean, it wasn't just like the film industry. It's right? a great example. Like, I mean, like a lot of stuff was gone. I mean, and then and then who was left? It was like, well, no, we're going to make our propaganda films now. We have to kind of do this, but we have to do this in a way that it looks like you want to do it. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because I don't want. We don't want to have a. We don't want to have a government wing. <laughs> for it right because that looks that looks bad so if we could you know if we gave you like i don't know how does six million dollars sound and then um maybe 10 i don't know how much a movie is i just i just <laughs> i just work for the Pentagon. Sign checks and um uh, you'll show up and and maybe we'll get uh one of the guys that came back from the war that we that we just left him in Hawaii for a while. Um we'll have him come back, just fly in. It's only a couple hours. He's got flight. a great tan. Yeah, and then we'll have him come in and then we'll do a movie about what a great war hero he was. And then <laughs> do you want girls too? We can get you girls. <laughs> and them drugs from this song. Don't have it. Don't say it was from us. Say it was from the mob. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Just hide behind. Just hide behind <laughs> them, and that would be great. 
Yeah, the U.S. government. I need to. I need to. I need to get back. My wife might think I'm cheating on her again, so I need to go. <laughs> Which, to be clear, I am. It's just she doesn't know that. I I run good propaganda at home as well. Uh, <laughs> but he just, yeah, comes that, that, and he just it, he was the originator of it. Wasn't me. It wasn't Shaggy. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Well, do you have do you have footage of it? Do you have because reco- I have a recorder of you with Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds like some Hoover tactics. I work for the you get Pentagon. Some blackmail. <laughs> Just always fall back on that. I work for the Pentagon. I'm the I reason mean, why Elvis made that Hawaii movie. God, he should have never made any of those movies. Uh. <laughs> Who doesn't love a luau with, uh, yeah, very Midwestern Elvis? <laughs> uh, yeah, he had he had good press agents. He had his own good propaganda wing. Elvis uh, died on the toilet. <laughs> but, but no, but, um, but that's the truth, right? Like we we uh, they, it, we didn't actually have a propaganda wing. We were just like, well, we have Hollywood, and we'll just make Hollywood do. Like we'll talk to them behind the side. It was an easy co option. It was easy to just kind of make a couple agencies to quote unquote oversee the industry. But in reality, it's we're talking about five or six major studio heads who need to be in on this. And something we didn't touch on earlier, and we can go more depth in, but the Hayes Code, when that came about in the early 30s, that was Hollywood self-regulating itself uh, because they were seen as immoral. Like, yeah, that all Hollywood stars did was do drugs and read, yeah, literature. um. But, like, they also were – it wasn't just stuff for us, right? It was stuff for our allies, like the Russians, Right. Yes. We had to make propaganda for them, too. Absolutely. So uh, and this is a, a perfect spot. So it, it's necessary at this juncture to point out that both the U.S. and Britain, as well as France during this time, held strict non-interventionist policies during the years 1936 and 1939. This was those nations essentially refusing to take a, scan, a stand against the rising tide of fascism in the years leading up to World War II. And – it proved to be – I mean you could make the case pretty easily. It was a huge and costly mistake. And the Americans weren't even drawn in until late 41, and that's when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Up until that point, the idea was not to go to war, to not relive the horrors of, of World War One um, and the loss of life. Now, it's also said that the government – or the people didn't know about the the Holocaust going on. The people probably not, but like our government definitely knew. It was strategic for them to stay out until they couldn't anymore, which is when Pearl Harbor got bombed. And so if we look at it from the Hollywood standpoint, these years, these consequential years, um, Hollywood was already in, in their own self-interest using some political tact, sometimes making films to portray French or Soviets as being sympathetic because those were the people in the late 30s. Those, those were the countries who were on the front lines fighting against the Germans. So our idea was to, well, we're not going to fight, but we can support you and we can make our populace yeah, look kindly upon, upon the French and the Soviets if we give them some movies. Now, the cruelest of all ironies here is that people who participated in some of these uh, specifically pro-Soviet movies before the war, when the tide turned after the war to the Cold War and anti-communism, uh, anti-Sovietness, all those filmmakers who had helped make those pro-Soviet movies now 
were being pointed at as being, uh, you know, communist sympathizers, even though they were doing what they thought was their duty the first time around. Yeah. And then also, like, they were going, well, no, like, this guy did this and they're pointing to the deal. And then they don't realize that they're also going to that guy going, you communist sympathizer. (laughs) I mean, we will. I I promise you, listener, next week or the week after we will be getting to the the Hollywood blacklist and we're going to have – a lot to discuss there. But for these – for the years uh, before the war ended, um, it, it is also worth no, uh, noting that the U.S. was getting flooded with uh, with uh, political refugees, and uh, Jews um, from Europe and Germany and um, uh, specifically filmmakers who were working for the Nazis or couldn't make films without making Nazi films. And, and F.W. Murnau and Fritz Lang, although Fritz Lang has a pretty complicated story that's been contested wh- when and why he actually left Nazi Germany. But so, these guys ended up coming to America to make films here with all the freedom. And so it's it's also a weird situation for them to be in to not be able to make that if they made these anti-fascist films coming as a political refugee from where the the arena war is they come here make a film about it and then 10 years later they get pointed at and called the enemy it's it's just very strange i i I just wanted to hit that home because we will be hitting that point again next week and just keep in mind that the newsreels from new uh from world war one that we discussed last week it's covering a lot of the same ground a lot of the same countries kind of just doing a lot of the same things Five major Hollywood filmmakers were recruited by these agencies. Um, There are three of them. It's the Office of War Information, the Bureau of Motion Pictures, and the Office of Censorship. They were three different entities that the the, the three different agencies that the government created. um, And they all did have separate and discrete tasks, but they're essentially one entity and they functioned as such. um, And they did, they used the kind of tactics you would think. I mean, at first they were supposed to just kind of oversee these films and try to get them away from adventure and escape is fair because the belief was that we wanted to portray a more realistic view of the war and have Americans kind of confront this idea, especially if, if, if the idea was that we might have to enter soon. And so these agencies, once the war did start, one of their first moves was they, they plucked five major Hollywood filmmakers, John Ford, John Huston, George Stevens, William Wyler, and Frank Capra. These are five very, very heavy hitters. If you've seen any black and white movie from the 40s and 50s with big name actors and costumes, one of these guys probably had a hand in it. They these were tastemakers. Yeah, and I would I would say John John Ford's career out of all of them was Absolutely. the biggest post war. But I think that's probably Huge. because he was the most on board for our side, and he did a lot of our movies and like that kind of stuff. And I think that was kind of the luck of the draw, and that regard if he had been shuffled around another way he would not and his westerns but he was yeah he was chosen for it because of his westerns because he was all about the american west and everything he was an immigrant from ireland yeah kind of perfect yeah but yeah he had a bad temper and um but he knew he, he knew how to get what he wanted and yeah his american west films were perfect allegories for the patriotism of of america which kind of in that 
time would have been an idealization of whiteness. If we look at some of John Ford's movies, they are incredibly uh, insensitive racially. Uh, John Wayne gets famous for mowing down a bunch of, uh, you know, Native Americans chasing after their stagecoach. But their stagecoach is in these people's territory. And overall, these people are invaders. (laughs) So it's it's all very strange. We can we will hit on that later. Well, I Um, mean, I think I think where there, there is a little bit of a reckoning when we get it into it, like when you go to John Ford's The Searchers, where I think John Ford was yeah. trying to come to terms, like as he got older, realized like kind of what he did. And I think that was his kind of almost like apology movie. Like that's kind of what it feels like, because really the center is around this this kid who's half Native American, half white. And like kind of like the hatred that John Wayne has for this kid's otherness that he then like comes to terms with throughout the film and kind of comes to terms with like how the daughter like was kidded up, but she really wanted to be like a part of the tribe. Like she really actually did like it. Like there were like, and then when he kind of goes away at the end, it's kind of like, this isn't the world for me anymore. So I feel like it was kind of like a, I'm sorry, but also I don't want to deal with this anymore. Goodbye. <laughs> That's very interesting. Cause now I'm thinking about red. That's how I took the movie. I'm thinking about red river, which I think is 48. It's like, uh, it's a John Wayne film. Uh, it's a John Ford Western, but uh, Montgomery P- Clift plays John Wayne's like son, and he's trying to track him down. But that movie's about John Wayne's character, who is yeah brusque and and just unapproachable um, and murderous. He he's trying to deal with this younger version of himself, this more innocent version of himself. And he's stuck in that, like, do we portray the world to this person how it is or how it, like, should be? And, yeah, actually, if yeah, look, thinking about John Ford movies in this context, he, he may may have seen the error. Maybe not error, but he understood the power of, of his films. And, yeah, maybe had had wished he could get some of them back yeah. um, as the times changed. Um, oh, yeah. And there— so this agency, um, as I had said a little bit before, they started with somewhat humble powers um, as the government didn't want to look like they were censoring or manipulating mass entertainment. And they were probably right with this instinct. It struck me that, at least speaking from today, I know Americans have a tendency to point fingers at another country, calling them brainwashed and unfree, um, but then celebrate and patronize movies designed with the exact same ends as those of the enemy, like films. And culture, I think that's how propaganda is is talked is talked about. Because, like you said, Pete, like they they didn't they knew they didn't want to be perceived as doing propaganda, but they understood they had to be doing this during a war. And so it was like this thin line. But with the agency, they were able to get more power uh, over the year. It was pretty much started immediately because they. They saw where American filmmakers were going, and some American filmmakers were resistant or trying to work for compromises, but most of them would eventually be brought along on, you know, the aegis of, of patriotism. It's an easier sell during times of war. But what the these agencies, they came up with these seven questions to ask about a film, and these are the seven guidelines they issued. Number one, will this picture help win the war? Number two, what war information problem does it seek to clarify, dramatize, or interpret? Number three, if it is an escape picture, will it harm the war effort by creating a false picture of America, her allies, or the world we live in? Number four, does it merely use the war as a basis for a profitable picture, contributing nothing of real significance to the war effort and possibly lessening the effect of other pictures of more importance? 
<laughs> it's a, quite a heady question there. Oh my uh, number god! Five, yeah, that's so specific. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> number five: Does it contribute something new to our understanding of the world conflict and the various forces involved, or has the subject already been adequately approached? Number six: When the picture reaches its maximum circulation on the screen, will it reflect conditions as they are and fill a need a, a need current at that time, or will it be outdated? Oh my God. And number, yeah, yeah. And number seven, does the picture tell the truth or the young people of today have reason to say they were misled by propaganda? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Yeah. So now when they're saying like, so there's a lot of true and false statements there. Like, and I, I don't mean that in some of these statements are false. Some of these statements are true. I mean, including the words true and false, but, when, but they are being used in a very subjective way. They're like, you know, is this telling a true picture of, the country. Well, actually, it might be telling a true picture of the country of like what it's like to be a a, a black man in forties Mississippi, and they'll go, "No, that's gonna make us look like the Nazis. We can't f- show that. Destroy it." Uh, like that's what they did. No, absolutely. It was yeah. The political strife here with um yeah, basically black rights, civil rights, and and, and so many people not being able to vote. Uh, I mean, we're talking about World War Two. Which in some ways seems like somewhat of a recent war, right? We have grandparents who fought in it maybe. Um, we hear the stories, but – Well, I think for us, we're a little skewed. I think a lot of our grandparents fought in Vietnam. I think a lot of great-grandparents probably did – at this point probably did World War II. And it's, it's hard to think about because like we think about like grandparents maybe in that sense. But I think for a lot of people, it's like great or great-great at this point. It's kind of funny to think about too because the number seven question – does the picture tell the truth or will the young people of today have reason to say they were misled by propaganda? That is the last one probably as a reminder for everyone that like we don't want to go too far too like we can't be too obvious with this or what you're going to do is you're going to make a generation of people who know they've been lied to. And Pete, we are a generation of people who know <laughs> we've been lied to. So is Gen X. Yeah. <laughs> well, sure. Absolutely. I, every generation can have that case, but I, our generation to me, cause we grew up in a post nine 11 world mm-hmm. and the war on terror. And you know, did Saddam have weapons of mass destruction? No. Somehow we yeah. mixed that up with yes. Uh, on the way to, a war in a, in a very oil dense country. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'll let you make <laughs> you, the listener, make some conclusions. <laughs> but at some point, populations might turn around and be like, "Were we fed fairy tales? And and why? And I'm angry about it now." Yeah, because that I mean, like, look at what, look at what we're doing, right? Like uh, exactly it, it where actually, I was going. Yeah, yeah, we're we're literally doing that right now for a personal show, which like. They didn't even know that there was going to be, like, independent, like, C, whatever, CB radios, right? CV, CB, right. I can't, I don't, I don't, it, it's so old, I don't even remember what they're called. Right. And, <laughs> and then to, to now, which is essentially the digital modern equivalent of that, like, we're literally breaking it down. They, they did understand, at least have the forethought back then, and I'm not sure if that necessarily would happen from a modern viewpoint. I think it would be more like, how do we make this look? It's almost like a real realism standpoint again, 
right? Like, That's I feel an like excellent we're, point. We're like, how do we make this look as real as possible? When it isn't about, it's about making this illusion, like this deep fake thing, look as real as possible. I want to make it look like Sebastian Stan was Mark Hamill. Like, I want to do blah, 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 blah. I want to I put Tom Holland and Robert Downey Jr. and Back to the Future because I think that's funny. And, it, and it's done so well that it's, like, it scares the crap out of you. Or, like, that Tom Cruise TikTok guy. Like, the, the emphasis now is on visual and auditory realism, again. Where here, yeah. it's about really manipulating history is what you're talking about. From yeah, with if if the populace sees it as a top down, not even rewriting of history because they are currently writing the history, uh, you know, as this goes along, and that's what these films are supposed to reflect and mirror is this this America. But it, I mean, it's part of real America, sure. But like you said, there were issues here that we weren't even close to dealing with, and we. It, it, we, I say we, the the Hollywood and U.S. government felt the need to just sweep that under the rug because we didn't want to look bad. It was that simple. We want to look good. How do you look good? Well, for them, an ideal propaganda film would emphasize that the war would indeed be over soon uh, and that the war was a fight for a better world indeed. These propaganda films and newsreels were vital for two reasons. One, because it gave soldiers on the front line motivation and support from back home. And if you think when they these guys might get, you know, those big Bob Hopes come in to tell jokes about golf and, and you're going to just roll out laughing because it's so funny and then a girl might take her top off. Uh, you know, in Apocalypse Now, you see this scene. Uh, th- this is also where oh, – yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they start – oh, man, when they start attacking the show, girl, like, no, come back. I was like, oh, my God, that's exa- – when they jumped down, the first thought in my head when I saw that scene for the first time was – Oh, this is going to go real bad real quick. Yeah. It's oh no. Yeah, it's a horror movie. You're like, "No, go get back in the helicopter, ladies." Yeah, you guys didn't read Heart of Darkness at all. Yeah. And neither did Brando, but uh it's <laughs> You need to read the uh, script. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes I like to eat strip out here in the wilderness with my photographer friend while they rub my feet. It makes me feel like I'm a monster uh. man. He most certainly was at different Dude, points of his life. Have you ever had, <laughs> have you ever had pistachios in 96-degree weather? Like, that's how he talks the whole movie. <laughs> you ever had pistachios in 96-degree weather? Like, he just asks this random question, and, and then she's just looking at him like... And then yeah. what they edited out is him looking at the crew going, I don't know what he's, what's that? Are we filming? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah and As he's looking at him genuinely scared, like, I don't know what you're trying to do with the knife. Right. This, they, and everyone on set talks about how every, they, this was everyone's hero. The director's hero. This was the actor's hero. They all grew up with Brando. And then it's like this asshole shows up 60 pounds overweight didn't read the book didn't read the script <laughs> he's like forgetting people's names left and right i think half of it was him ad-libbing and the other half was him reading uh like note cards yeah that that's why that that scene gets so trippy though like i mean to to coppola's credit it's so weird he was able to edit that in a in a way that makes it kind of fit in the film really really well as how insane he is because like it's it's so out of context you're like this guy doesn't even know how to talk anymore like (laughs) so it kind of worked and that's really to coppola's and and really coppola's editors credit for that one i think because i think that yeah no that's a good point saved in post that whole for sure yeah That it couldn't have been easy uh, to the point. Yeah, where, sorry to get back to it, but I know we keep going off. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. 
this brings us to an interesting phrase that kind of summarizes the the whole goal here with what we're talking about with these propaganda films. So head of these agencies was a guy named Elmer Davis. He was a former journalist who had some friends in good places and they put him at a head of basically this three-headed uh yeah propaganda arm of uh the government collaborating with hollywood and he said the easiest way to inject a propaganda idea into most people's minds is to let it go in through the medium of an entertainment picture when they do not realize that they are being propagandized that that has is been so evil sounding it's so it's, it's like the, it's very sinister it's the idea is to, yes, completely thread it so perfectly that you are propagating these people to the fullest where you don't cross over into them noticing they, they're being propagandized. And so this is like the razor thin edge we're on. This model has become to be known as the hypodermic needle model because you're essentially – injecting these people yeah with with barely a prick they they hardly know it but they're 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 filled now with this stuff yeah man that actually makes like a a pit in my stomach feeling when you talk about that so okay so i couldn't believe it give me some examples of this give me some examples the hypodermic needle what what we're talking about here for example is um the crowd scenes might show women in 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 uniform right because america were were progressive. Uh, the women can even fight in this war. And you would also get scenes where teenagers uh, are, are, you know, instead of out brutalizing and holy hand and holy gagging, <laughs> they're uh, participating in war activities. And this was also seen in, in movies you would see businesses or, or even out in the world uh, would be displaying war posters. This These films would be put in a world where the war is like the backdrop. It's the cultural temperature. If if you go out for a burger, well, you might be standing in in line in front of uh, yeah, a, a woman who who's who, who's in the in, in the military, and this it, it was a way to show Americans that this is what we want to idealize. This is what we are proud of. Oh, dude, that you know what that makes me re- think of? You're gonna think this is weird, like modern day YouTube rap videos. Where they're like wearing like paper masks and they bring them down or it's hanging off their ear and they're in the street and they're doing their thing. But they're all wearing mat. They all have proper PPE. So do you think that's for like posterity so people don't cancel them in like two years or something? Or is it like – I think about that. I think about like when – Contextualizing. Where like the kind of negativity around condoms change to positivity at a certain point in rap music like like, like they're they're where you're talking about like the Q-tip. the propagandizing of with this hypodermic needle thing i kind of think of that cuz it's like well that's the most popular music right now and everything and then you see like that which is like don't get me wrong please wear your mask that's please that's absolutely 100% absolutely. Something you do. <laughs> but like that kind of reminds me of that style of thing and and maybe they don't realize they're doing it. Maybe they real they're like, oh no, like they did this back in then. They just added it was like the modern day, and it kind of like showed them the moment of the time and blah 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 blah. And people will remember this part because we're kind of like immortalizing this like this time capsule. When really what you're doing is kind of molding people in the moment with the illusion of we're capturing this moment in a bottle. Yeah, it's and, and we talked about this in our first couple episodes where each generation of filmmaker doesn't matter the technology, they're all dealing with this question is what what can we do with this and what is it capable of? And 
again, I, I'm going to keep bringing this up. We now, we, we see these things differently. It's hard to go back and think about the ground floor of like creating propaganda on newsreels in World War One, or or being someone at an agency who's dictating, nearly yeah. requiring Hollywood to to act as a branch of, of the military. I mean, that's what this essentially is. This is, is information war. Um, and everyone understood it as such. None of None of the axis of, of evil or the allies were confused about this by the time the war started. Like I said, there were a couple countries that were a little wary, but that was mostly on how they were going to be perceived. They did. Everyone knew what, what was, was to come. Um, and I got a couple quotes here. They all get at the what, what the ultimate goal of, of propaganda is. And again, it's... It can be used for good or bad. If you're someone who really thinks we should have joined World War II and that we needed to galvanize the people, because you got to remember, there was a lot of isolationists at this time. They were afraid that getting drugged into this this new European war was just going to be a rehashing of World War One. So there was a lot of isolationists. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people understand that. Like there, there is a view of World War One and World War Two where like the the war didn't stop. Where it's like you can view it as like it was just a kind of a ceasefire, really, because all the major players of World War Two were involved in World War One in some capacity on the ground. Yeah, and th- that's so. France and England were the first to join. Uh, the forces against Germany, I believe. But like I said, America was, was a couple years behind. They, I, we were in this situation because we were away from uh, from the the theater of war. We were we were here. That was ha- happening in Europe. We had the luxury to say like, "No, nah, we're going to sit this out until it came to us with Pearl Harbor." Now, I mean, we could talk about whether I would have liked uh, the America to help out in the Spanish Civil War. Because that was kind of the precursor to World War II, and you could have maybe defeated it there. It didn't happen that way, um, and that's how history goes. You can't really go back and, and do what-ifs because it's not worth it. You take one block of history away, everything is going to fall a little differently. So Yeah, that's the plot of, uh, that's the plot of Time Cop with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, yeah, that no, classic. <laughs> I thought you were gonna. What's the? Give me that, the dagger. Really, really, it's just uh, it's to stop like robberies in the past, where they like go and like rob these banks in the '30s with like future tech, and it's like to stop that stuff. But he's like secretly wants to like save his family from being murdered, but they don't want him to do that because that's like somehow crossing a line. Wait, they have this wonderful technology, and they send him back to stop bank robberies in the '30s. Yeah. Why? Because <laughs> that'll like shift this or that and make this person powerful for this. The, the, it's like, it's so. That's crazy. All right. Well, maybe. It's so season, mid 90s sci fi. Season seven, we're going to do a whole Jean Claude Van Damme. It's going to be called Jean Claude Van Damme it. Uh, we have to do this now because we're out of ideas. Uh, <laughs> um, Van Damme it, yeah. Brian. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to get a couple of the, these quotes out. Um, the sources I use will be in the the show notes, uh, and I'm going to include them where I can here, but I just want to give these quotes by people who were involved in these agencies or, I mean, they're sociologists of the time. And, and we're talking about people who are, they're planning culture, which is it, it. This is where you get into the territory of like, people are afraid of the Illuminati and all these, in these seemingly crazy things. But it, everyone understands the power of 
of this stuff in imagery. And so you can go on YouTube and find, you know, this is why Katy Perry's halftime show is satanic because uh, she said this in the song. It's like, no, that's that has nothing to do with it. Um, but to that point, if a government wants to, they can enlist people to get messages out. And so it's it, it makes it difficult for people to reckon with this stuff because, like we said, that number seven rule with being misled – you can't really be misled anymore because you can find a fact to justify any thought you have. There is no misleading. It's an onslaught. You have to be the loudest or the last one left. And so it is interesting to think about how these things come out now because it's – you end up sounding like, yeah, Orwell in 1984, you know, the easy reference here. When you talk about this stuff, but this – this is the nature of war. If it makes you uncomfortable, well, it probably should because war is very uncomfortable. And it goes beyond just obviously the atrocities and the deaths. Obviously, they're worse, but we're also talking on the home front, generations of people who are, have ideas put in their head that might not be true, but they were put there at during a time when you were more likely and more liable to believe it, and that's wartime. And in these catastrophes, people in power – um, read Naomi Klein's book, Disaster Capitalism, where basically the idea is that any situation can be vultured in our system. And this is no different. You're just taking your circumstance and you're doing what you can with it. That's what these these propagandist arms were doing. And like I said, we could argue all day the merits of this. I have a knee-jerk reaction against all this stuff. It, it, it makes me sick. But I also understand – Looking at it historically, that you, you the, the U.S. wasn't going to be the country who was just not going to do propaganda. They tried to be cool and slick about it and do the whole like, oh no, that's for crazy Germans. Uh, we we don't do that. Uh, we'll just cut up the deal in the back room, obscure it from you, and then put someone pretty on screen in in a colorful dress, and you won't even worry about it. And that was kind of the thought. Uh, so yeah, let me let me get at one of these quotes. Uh, Movies that depict war reinforce the message that the war would not. Be be permanent and that a better world in society in society would be created in the end this is uh, a thought by a, a hollywood exec at the time yeah we also have this is from I, I i don't have a name but this is from some archivist uh came up with this propaganda and advertisement sometimes become inextricably intertwined in the process huh. and this is the idea like where if you're a business now you can put up patriotic stuff in your store and you put a poster up and now people are going to have that warm, fuzzy, nationalistic, patriotic feeling because, hey, you're you're in this with us. And we still see this. This is the same thing as as brands on Twitter like Dunkin' Donuts going on and trying to like make some like woke social issue point where it's like why – you do not care about this. Like leave us alone here. Go make the donuts. Um, uh, or like, you know, like, like Disney coming out and like, no, we're going to do this now. We're gonna we're gonna go in this direction because that's the right and and I feel I, I feel completely I, intertwined. Yeah, I I do feel like it does need to be done. There does need to be like companies that do like social justice stuff, right? That go in the direction of more justice and more diversity and more representation and everything. If so, it if only so it doesn't go the other way. If it is for the sake of money, then no. Absolutely not. Don't do it. If it is for the sake of no, this is the right thing to do, then please do it. Because when you do it, it's going to turn out like Black Panther, you know, like it's going to turn out amazing. And you're going to see like all that stuff. You know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, like Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse hunting Nazis in the 40s. (laughs) Which is, yeah, true. That actually uh, perfect spot to say that some of the most effective... (laughs) 
some of the most effective movies at this time were the animated. Were these animated features? I feel a little woozy. Oh, boy. That's the chemical name. Um, and yes, that folks. Oh, that doesn't even <laughs> doesn't even sound like this Donald is actual. <laughs> he was dying. That was Donald dying in the mud. <laughs> From like the uh, nothing... scene with Saving Private Ryan, where the I got the picture of my mom. <laughs> this everyone makes a mistake. They say Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing so he could get the good cameras from the government to make 2001: Space Odyssey. <laughs> no. He made the animated movies. That's why Donald Duck has to die in mud at the end. It's only fair. That's my it's conspiracy like the theory. Same way. Deep it's Kubrick. Just like Vin Diesel. Yeah. And then like Mickey's like, no, we gotta save him. And like Goofy's like trying to hold him back. Pluto's there with the rifle, like praying and dogs. See, was were now were these characters accessible in uh, Ready Player One? Could you get the uh, Hitler slaying uh, Daffy Duck? Uh, with the uh, with the tomato. <laughs>